Welcome to The Big F You. I'm your host, Erica Cantor. This is a show all about fucking up and failing up. I'll be interviewing comedians, artists, entrepreneurs, and generally speaking, people I find interesting about the early parts of their careers to learn how they fumbled their way into various measures of success. Today, I'm talking to a good friend of mine, J.D. Slacker. J.D. is an American novelist, public speaker, philanthropist, and screenwriter, and former Division I athlete. J.D. played basketball at UC Santa Barbara before publishing his debut novel, Moonflower, in 2018, only three months after graduating college. Following the rapid success of his first book, J.D. embarked on a year-long speaking tour where he talked about his career as a college athlete, his journey into becoming an author, and his incredible bond with his best friend, Luke Bowden. In the 12 months following the release of his book, J.D. reached over 100,000 people with his message, culminating with him delivering the UC Santa Barbara ICA commencement address to the class of 2019. J.D. is the Director of Relationship Development for the Luke Strong Foundation and a National Ambassador for the American Red Cross. J.D. also co-wrote the original screenplay, Happy at You. J.D. published his second novel, Darling, You're Not Alone, in 2022, and we recorded this episode in November of 2022, shortly after the book's release, so we talk about that a bunch. In this interview, J.D. and I discuss applying an athlete's mentality to his artistic approach, overcoming fear to create and share his work, and his motivation to write his latest novel, Darling, You're Not Alone, which deals with the very heavy topic of gun violence in America. J.D. has the unique ability to discuss heartbreaking topics with sincerity and optimism. Without further ado, J.D. Slacker. J.D., how are you doing today? I'm doing fabulous, Erica. It's a wonderful opportunity to be on your show, get to sit before you. We've known each other for a bit of time, but honored to be here for sure. Yeah, it's been like what? A couple years. Yeah. A couple years. First of all, I rock with you tough. You know that. Um, I would do any. I would do anything for so you. Tough. Yeah, but I think I don't know. In, in this sort of crazy world of like entertainment, you kind of know the real ones from the fake ones. And from the moment we met, you've always been one of the real ones to me. And uh, I think you're a talented writer and obviously a hilarious comic. But I yeah, I just have always told you like I believe in you. So any chance to uh, talk with you and now this podcast is a super cool opportunity that I'm here to support you, dude. So I'm thanks. Here. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I've always felt the same about you. Like I remember when we met at that party, we were at a party in the Hamptons, and we just like, which sounds cool, so cool already. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember we just talked about writing for like probably 45 minutes or something. I d- time didn't exist. <laughs> Yeah, well, that night was, uh, I have a bunch of friends who live out in New York. So I go every summer and uh, we got invited to some cool party at, in, I think it was like Sag Harbor or somewhere out there. And that's not a, that's not a, yeah, not a place I've been super familiar with, (laughs) but yeah, I was just hanging out and I don't even know how we got on the topic of writing, but I think I asked you like, Hey, no, I think someone came up to me and they were like, that guy over there is a writer. Uh huh. And they were like, you should go talk to him about writing. And then I was like, hi, I'm a writer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember the big moment of that night we met was we talked about writing, but then you kept saying you're moving to L.A. And I remember that being the thing. Like, you're like, oh, I'm moving to L.A. No, I was living in L.A. at that point. Oh, you were? Yeah. And saying, but I remember something about it. You're like, yeah, I just, just moved or I am Yeah, moving. like I had maybe been out here a year or something. And I didn't know a ton of people. And I was like, oh, like I got you for sure. Yeah. Like let's definitely get together. And yeah. Then, yeah. And I like was really just sort of like adamant about following up on that. And then I read your script, which was incredible. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, we met at Great White in Venice. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. It's so rare that you send someone your script and they actually read it. <laughs> like for that. every single person, I send my shit to like, 25 people when i'm done with sure. a, a new version and you were one of the few that actually read it and took the time to give me like very thoughtful notes and i just had so much gratitude mm. hey it's not easy to write a script number no. one so i had a lot of respect for you just to put it down and then to send it is also like a brave thing i have a lot of people i meet that are like yeah i'm working on something and it's in progress but then never actually 
get the courage to send it to me. Yeah. So you just sent it right away. And I don't know. I just, well, I remember telling you too, you reminded me a lot of myself, like when I was just <laughs> getting started. And I really took it personally that you were willing to trust me with your work. Yeah. That I really wanted to read it. And then what didn't hurt, like I told you is, you know, I loved it. Like I would have told you if I didn't. And I thought you were so hilarious. Thank um, you. <laughs> and I thought the script was so, yeah, you had so much potential in that way that I wanted to meet the person who had written it like once again. So yeah, we've been, thanks. we've been homies ever since. Yeah. Appreciate that. I mean, that script is in a very different place now because it was structurally chaos. Well, it was, it, it was structurally chaos. Yeah, I just it, hadn't studied screenwriting. Right. In a we talked about it. Yeah. 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 And there were point. like the, all the books. Remember I said like, Oh, you should read this book or that yeah, book. And I did and, all of that. Yeah. I forgot that you were the one who sent me, you sent me in, I don't want to call it a rabbit hole <laughs> because it was like so useful and a rabbit hole seems useless, but I don't, are rabbit holes useless? No. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. yeah it, rabbit it was holes. a rabbit hole. It was like a, a fucking like a, awesome rabbit a hole. A productive rabbit hole. Yeah. It was a very productive <laughs> rabbit hole. And I spent the next six to eight months just studying yeah. screenwriting and studying structure. And then I rewrote it. And now I have comments from like one specific mentor that has like made me feel like okay now i see this is what has to happen and Mm. it's on the right track well screenwriting is so formulaic like i think that's the one thing i've learned coding yeah and and, i mean like i come from the novel world initially where there isn't as much of that formula in terms of like all right this is how you have to tell your story like you have a lot of freedom in that Mm -hmm. way but for a lot of writers that can be equally as intimidating because it's like all right I don't have to have like my break into act two on page 25 or my like darkest before dawn at page 75 or whatever those beats are. But yeah, I think with screenwriting, because I adapted my first novel Moonflower into a screenplay and I sort of had that similar like had to come around to the difference between screenwriting and novel writing. So I had to go through that that productive rabbit hole myself. Mm -hmm. Did you write Moonflower, the adaptation yourself? So no, I wrote it with a good friend of mine who you also know, Chris Veronis, yeah. uh, who's like my, Great guy. yeah, he's my best friend and he's also my literary manager. So yeah. he's helped me a ton with, I mean, my goodness, even like editing projects to writing speeches I do. He's you a know, hustler. Yeah. I mean, he's like a total grinder and he puts together like a lot of the media that I've done and he's been my right hand for like the last five years. And I attribute a lot of our success to like his grind and his mm-hmm. work ethic, but we also co-wrote the screenplay for my first book, Moonflower, which is called Happy at You. And because he kind of had that background in screenwriting and he really just like held my hand through the process. (laughs) So sweet. Yeah, yeah. So so, So tender. So metaphorically tender. (laughs) Because I, again, like I would come in and just write these super lengthy descriptions of scenes and he'd be like, dude, there's like one sentence you can write. Yeah. (laughs) That I needed that education. Yeah. Which I think... To be honest, so I wrote my first book, Moonflower, from like 2016 to 2018. It was published in 2018. I adapted that in like 2019, 2020 uh, into Happy at You, the screenplay. And then Mm -hmm. I went into writing Darling, You're Not Alone, my new book, around that time too. And I actually have had a lot of people that, and I agree with this, that going through the process of writing that script really helped me going then I'm going back into my second novel because I think it sort of showed me how to do more with less so yeah I think it I think those two can kind of benefit one another in that in that space yeah and I I just think you never really recognize as a consumer the value of structure Hmm. because it's hidden if it's done well you know like there's a phrase in comedy like sweaty comedy and like sweaty comedy is when you can see the comedy happening Mm. like paul feig talks about this and like with screenwriting if something is flowing really well you can't even tell that you're exactly yeah Uh, 12 minutes in when x thing happens well and for sure yeah Mm. i totally agree i mentioned this too when we met was the idea is you get so good at the commercial flow or or mechanics of a story Mm -hmm. that then you can start breaking them and like that once you have that formula i don't know kind of like you feel comfortable enough you gotta know the rules to break yeah yeah (laughs) completely and like it gives you that freedom to then bounce outside of it but yeah i I think writing in all its forms is like super dope and i know that you do too so that's why we've always vibed but yeah and you write by hand Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's <laughs> that, crazy. That is that is but correct. So much respect. Spike Lee does that with his first yep. screenplays, like the first drafts. Tarantino as well. Wild. Yeah, I have a lot to say about that particular topic. Please yeah. tell us. <laughs> <laughs> I do it for like a variety of reasons. Technology is like a beautiful thing, and I. I love technology. I love social media. Mm -hmm. I think it connects us to a lot of different people, but I think to write and to be truly creative, you have to completely step away from that kind of distraction, I guess. Right. Right. So when you're handwriting, you know, there's no email, there's no phones, there's no texting. It's just you and like this blank page. And I think that is meditative in a sense. It's so transcendent for me when I'm writing. That's honestly my favorite part about being a writer is that step one of creating a book or a screenplay for that matter. And so that's like the first reason I do it. The second reason is, Erica, you can like physically see the progress you're making in the project you're writing. Like you Mm -hmm. can look back at the first page and the second page and the third page and they're like, I mean, they're tangible products. Mm -hmm. So as you're flipping through it, you're like, dang, I'm 10 pages into a novel. Like, let me get to 12 today. And then the next day it's like, let's say 12 to 16. And Mm -hmm. you can kind of feel it with your hands when it's on a computer I think it's harder to see that progress totally and then the other thing is the third reason is you can do it from anywhere I was writing my first book Moonflower on the bus to a game or on a plane and you don't need wi-fi and you can just be sort of in this I don't know it's like a world in and of itself that you can transport you to you know wherever you are and I love that and then also it's the iCloud that never fails you don't need a laptop charger or anything like that yeah. you can just have it with you so dude that's my biggest fear yeah seriously i would like i would like have nightmares about that all the time <laughs> but like having a handwritten copy would prevent me from that and then i would say the fourth thing is just when you're typing you can just get so ahead of yourself and your thoughts because your fingers can move so quickly mm-hmm. when you're handwriting man like you are at such a slow monotonous pace that Every word you select is kind of diligent. It just puts me into a creative mindset that helps me write. And I don't think I could write a book any other way. So, Were you always a writer? When no. did you start writing? <laughs> it's a sweet story. And it's one I'm you know, happy to speak about because I think it is a really, I guess I would say adorable is like the correct word. <laughs> but I used to write letters to friends all the time when I was a That's kid. That's beautiful. I love a good letter. Yeah. And like that just became my sort of thing. And I was always like, so excited to write letters to my best friends and my parents and even people I'd like just hardly met, but I just wanted to thank. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, yeah. With the letters, what inspired you to do that? Like I remember my grandma used to always be like, you have to write handwritten letters to people. I like being different in anything I do in life. I've always sort of been drawn to just like, if I see a bunch of people doing something, I always get like a weird sort of itch in my head of like, all right, I probably shouldn't do that, do that thing. even if it is like a probably a good thing yeah i've always so you're not jumping off the brooklyn bridge when all your friends are jumping yeah off the yeah yeah bridge. yeah cool. it's it's just like <laughs> it's just been this i don't know i guess i just have always enjoyed being different and letter writing was something that made me different it made me stand out i suppose i also was kind of evolved from that into putting together this book of signatures from all my friends to a mutual friend as like like to think of it as like a big birthday card Mm -hmm. that was the evolution of letter writing into taking an entire book and then having all this girl who i was super close with and she was studying abroad i had all her friends sign and have a page of this thing and i was going to bring it to her for her birthday since she was out of the country and i went from letter writing to that to then novel writing and i didn't really know i was you know going through this evolution into becoming a writer but it sort of happened so yeah and that was the premise of your first novel yeah 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 moonflower yeah and it was about that girl who was studying abroad i went and visited her while she was in rome and we had an amazing time and it was like one of the coolest 10 days of my life obviously you know enough to write a (laughs) book about but when i returned back i was i guess swirling in terms of what i wanted to do with my life and i felt so sort of empty when you know i'd left her And, you know, just for the record, like we were totally platonic, just friends. And Mm -hmm. like, I was sort of knew I was like falling in love with my best friend. And I started writing her letters pretty consistently, like once a week, twice a week. And I started seeing that she couldn't keep up with like the... the... Study abroad is war. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) When will my wife return? (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know. I just 
decided, all right, like instead of writing her letters, I'm going to write a book about us. And yeah. yeah, then like the rest after that is history, like literally. So yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> yeah, it was a crazy, yeah, I was 21. So it was a long time ago, but yeah, you were playing basketball right. very intensely, mm-hmm. right? In college, yeah. playing division one sports. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm so curious to know how writing fit into your schedule in that. And then I think when we've talked about this in the past, you've always said people have always been so supportive of you as a writer. And I'm just wondering, you know, was there ever any sort of like pushback or embarrassment to express yourself? That's a really great question. There's a couple of things that I think about with that. Number one, was there a pushback embarrassment? I would say the short answer is yes, for sure. I mean, coming from like being a D1 athlete into writing like a love novel is like a pretty (laughs) stark, you know, that's like two crazy ends of the spectrum right there. Yeah. But in lieu of that, I actually didn't tell anyone I was writing this book for over a year Mm -hmm. because I I was afraid, pretty simply. I also felt like I knew people would tell me, dude, that's stupid. Like, there's no way you can write a book. I know you. You're not Mm -hmm. like the writer. You're not a great student even. I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want that voice or negativity, even from people that I knew loved and cared about me to try and deter me from that. So I just didn't want, I didn't even want to give them the chance to tell me not to do it because I didn't tell them I was doing it. But I think because of that, and I'll kind of answer your question about how I did it, was I would get up really early every day and write. My schedule was I would get up at five in the morning and write from this like- This is while you were in college. Yeah, while I was still playing college basketball. And it was Locked my- on. Yeah, senior year. Yeah, it was, it was insane. It was truly insane. So I lived alone. I'd get up at five in the morning and write from 5 a.m. to maybe like 8 a.m. And then we'd have weights from 9 to 10 a.m. And then after weights, I'd go to class from like 10 to maybe one thirty. And then from about two to really six, we'd have practice. And then right after practice, it's like dinner. And then I'd have maybe another like 45 minutes to write before I'd go to sleep that night. And I just like pass out and then do it all over again. And I did this for the better part of like 16 months. And then because of the fact that I wasn't telling anyone what I was doing, I started losing like a lot of friends, a lot of good friends that were in my life or were supportive of me were like, dude, we clearly, you know, I don't know you anymore. Like you're not around like I didn't go out I didn't drink I was like super antisocial because by the time the weekend hit I was exhausted so I was usually just catching up on sleep or then I would write a lot but what started to happen was as I mentioned I was fearful of telling these people okay this is what I'm actually doing all the time mm-hmm. and so eventually I I decided to open up to like a small group of friends that then became a bigger and bigger group and they were so stoked for me they were so supportive. Coming out as an artist. Yeah. yeah. It's a theme. I'm going to need to change yeah, the name yeah, of this yeah. podcast. Uh, <laughs> I, I can imagine. I mean, I think a lot of people have that fear. I bet that's like pretty common. It's so common. Yeah. It's so common. So. I mean, within my own family, I was an engineer and now I'm an artist. They were like, huh? Yeah. Why don't you, I mean, how was your experience with that? I mean, I'm sure you had a similar like fear. I have to say, yeah, like I had a lot of fear about it. I think up until very recently, I have continued to like have that fear to express myself. And then also like even while I'm doing these things kind of privately or on my own time to put it out there into the world, that fear has remained with me up until very recently, I think, where I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. This is where I'm at. And I've also seen a transformation in my family in the way that they support me. For example, I mean, it's just kind of the reality of what I'm doing right now that there's financial constraints. I used to have a job with a 401k and health insurance, healthy salary and things like that. And now the second I get a paycheck, it's going to improv classes and equipment and so badass like literally (laughs) like I (laughs) like it's and I just was talking to my mom the other day and this is again a woman who physically sat down the first time I told her Mm. I was in a play and she was like it's all going to be worth it one day you know and I was just like that is the sweetest thing and I mean 
I had a conversation with my dad a while back where I wasn't considering quitting by any means. It was just maybe a pivot, you know, I'm just, I feel like my wheels are always turning. What am I doing? What am I doing? I'm constantly evaluating whether that's healthy or not. (laughs) (laughs) And he was just like, stick with what you're doing. Don't change course yet. You haven't seen it through. How old are you? You're 20... 24. Yeah, I'm 28. When I was 24, not that I'm that much older than you, but like you'd be... Well, you had published a book. (laughs) I I mean, but it's like every year it just has gotten to this bigger and bigger and bigger thing. And like, you know, suddenly now I've got a lot of people that are like, oh my God, I always knew, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, dude, I I know for sure you didn't think that like four (laughs) four years ago, you know? And like, trust me, I... You're well on your way. I, I've seen the talent in you. And I mean, look at us sitting here right now. Like who would have yeah. thought this would be happening? So it's like you have that same gumption that I felt like I had when I was your age. And that's why, you know, I respect the hell out of you. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that means a lot. Yeah, no, it's a it's a weird and tricky thing. I feel like I definitely I've like reconnected with some really old friends and those friends they say that they knew and I know that they are being honest it's funny because when I was a freshman in college I had these two best friends and one of them was studying film and she'd be like doing her assignments or whatever sitting on the floor of her dorm room eating Hershey kisses and I'd be like helping her just giving her unsolicited opinions probably I, can, I, can I mean, sometimes they that. were solicited, yeah, but imagine. probably mostly unsolicited opinions. That. And I've just always been obsessed. And she would always be like, dude, you've got to be in RTVF. That's the radio television film uh-huh. program at Northwestern. And I don't know what it was, but I was in the engineering program and I was like, this is what I'm fucking doing here, you uh-huh. know? And uh-huh. I knew that I never wanted to be an engineer, but I just felt very headstrong. And I don't have any regrets about that. I feel very grateful and happy with the way everything's unfolded but i will acknowledge there there's no engineering going on (laughs) i'm a firm believer in like our past are sort of all happened for a reason to Mm -hmm. build us into the person we are today like no you know no artist was just purely an artist from day one and, and that's all they were for their whole life whether you believe it or not i bet a lot of your engineering background influences how you attack your artistic future right now yeah and i know like the athlete in me is still very much alive in like how i write the discipline with which i say like all right i'm doing an hour of this before that and just the time management right that i think helps me a lot as a writer another thing i talk about a lot is most people look at a novelist and say oh he must be or she must be like a total perfectionist and the first time they write anything it's beautiful and that could not be further from the truth of like how i think about it And I actually argue that if I had been like a perfectionist or a really gifted writer from a young age, I wouldn't be writing books because so much about working on a project is just grinding through the terrible first drafts, second drafts, like slowly seeing it's getting better. And that's a total athlete mindset. And like, so I think my basketball background, although I'm like far from being in as good a shape as I was four (laughs) years ago, is alive in me in that way. So... Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that. I feel like I'm being slightly facetious when I say there's absolutely no engineering going on because like... Facetious other... is a great word, <laughs> by the way. Thanks. <laughs> Points for me. Yeah. yeah, no, I feel like I'm being slightly facetious just because like I do think about this often. One of the number one things that I learned through engineering school was how to iterate and not to be a perfectionist and how to just test shit out and test it on audiences. I studied design and you would have to literally build surveys and ask people questions and do a lot of groundwork and get out there. And that's all comedy is, is just testing your material and getting it out there. And so, yeah, no, I think about that often. That kind of opposite of perfectionism Give us a good word, JD. Ooh, opposite of perfectionism. Mad Libs, go. Uh, I would say that. My, the, I mean, that's a, that's a great that's a great little one. I uh, I would Lucy Goosey. <laughs> Lu- well, Lucy Goosey. I just think like 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 op- optimistic is how I would yeah like, like making something from nothing. Like you have to have that. I mean, the like it's not exactly just working on the fly, but it's sort of glass half full Mm -hmm. I think is super important because 
you just have no idea when that lightning is going to strike of like, oh my God, I need to write this book or I need to have this comedy bit or I need to start this podcast. Mm -hmm. And when it does, you got to be ready. And a perfectionist is going to be like, well, I'm not, you know, at my desk or I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you know, I've had one or two glasses of wine. So like, I should probably not do anything right now. And it's like, no, oh, like that is the best time. That's like write. actually <laughs> when that creativity really sparks. So yeah. I don't know. I think, yeah, you got to be just a little bit willing to accept that the circumstances of life's, you know, creativity and ideas are going to come when you're not ready. Yeah, no, it's very true. Mine all happened to me when I'm driving. So what your idea? Oh my God. Yeah. Every, every great idea I've had, um, not to both, you know, boost myself up or, or anything like that. If I like see that. you on the road, I'll swerve away. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just like, <laughs> Thanks for sharing. I'm secretly listening to Frank Ocean and just thinking about like the next book or yeah. whatever. Yeah. No, for me, it's all right before I go to bed. The other night I actually, I'm still mad at myself because normally I don't care how late it is. If I have an idea, I'll write it down. Yeah. Same. But the other night I sleep with a weighted blanket Okay, and I was just mummified. I sleep with a weighted blanket too, by the way. Those yeah. are unbelievable. It's the best. Everyone should do it. And I was just completely mummified and I was like, I can't write this joke down, whatever. And I've been thinking about it for three days now. And I'm like, what was the joke? What was the joke? What? <laughs> I, <laughs> I still don't know, but it had me cackling even though I was mummified. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, weighted blankets are fire. I sleep with a weighted blanket because I'm 6'6", six, six, and I've never actually had a real hug in my life because people are so much smaller than me. <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about? Like, No, I like, don't know what you're talking so, about. So I'll explain. So when you're 6'6", six six, or bigger, I would assume, when people hug you, you're getting like a 40% hug, right? Okay. Like, Like no one's fully bringing you in and giving you a hug. Oh, sure. And that's kind of a tough... Oh, you need a hug. Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. You need a hug. So you my weighted blanket. Find a giant to give you a hug. My weighted blanket is like the closest I've gotten to like a real. Oh my God. Yeah. That's beautiful. You should go into the forest <laughs> and find a grizzly bear and just get a get a real cuddly hug. That seems like yeah. the only solution. So these are the things. You sh these, are, these are tall people problems. <laughs> yeah. Can we backtrack for a second? Yeah. You said that you started waking up at 5 a.m. to write this novel, right? And I'm curious, when did you first have that idea? Like, I am writing a novel and I'm going to start waking up at 5 a.m. and change my life for mm. this work of art, mm. having done none of this in the past. I was always a big reader. When people ask me, like, how did you get into writing books? Where did this come from? That's mm -hmm. something that easily became... I don't know. I, I just loved reading before I loved writing. So I would read constantly. And I was reading this book that was like this bestseller and really successful novel. And I just remember like, it's 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 pretty stupid to be honest, Erica, but like it's, it is the truth is mm -hmm. I remember reading this book. This is when I was still playing in college and just being in like this airport and thinking to myself, you know what? I feel like I have a better story to tell than this book. And once that thought kind of crept into my head, I just sort of kept thinking like, you know what, I'm not going to be the person who looks back on their life and says, oh, you know, I was going to go on to do this or that, but like I let this stop me or, or you know, I just was too busy or too tired or whatever. Right. And I just said, you know what, the only person you can blame is yourself if you don't actually write this book that you think is better than this one. So right. I just wanted to experiment in that way and push myself to do something that I didn't know would be possible or not. Mm -hmm. And I think what I learned too, which I had no idea was the truth of, of just humanity in general, it makes me teary eyed to this day is like, once I took that first step and that leap, how many people got behind me and said, dude, I, I got you. My professors, my best friends, you know, I had so many people, my editors, my cover designers, and every person that I worked with was almost going above and beyond because they're like, dang, I believe in you. I yeah. believe in this book. And that obviously played a huge part. And then that started to give me confidence. And it was just a snowball effect that I think is still snowballing even to this day. And had I not had that really strong initial push, I don't know if I even would have followed through. So I think I had to take a crazy leap for sure. And mm -hmm. I don't want to take away from that. But after I did that, I was respected differently from people around me. They recognize what you just illustrated is like, how do you go from never writing anything to just book 
and <laughs> people, you know, were on my side pretty soon after that. So cool. And what did you think you were going to do at that point? What do you mean? What do you mean? Did you have any career prospects <laughs> that you were blowing off? Well, I was probably going to play professionally oh, as a basketball player. Shit. Yeah, yeah, probably not in the U.S. That was not realistic, wow. but overseas. So a lot of my teammates got contracts to go play overseas in like Spain or Germany and Switzerland. And so cool. That was like the plan was to continue to play. And yeah, so this was my alternate route. Cool. Do you still play? Never. Never. (laughs) Do you wish that you did play some horse, you know, horse with the boys? (laughs) Not at at all. I mean, I think like I dedicated so much of my life to hoop that... (laughs) I just like, Open. I just never want to, I, I never want to reopen that chapter. Almost like I closed yeah. it and I worked so hard at it for so many years. I was actually not someone that was like naturally skilled. I just loved the sport so much that I've worked at it constantly. Right. So to then go back and like in my head, I feel like I can still move the way I used to, but my body can't because I'm so washed up. Right. It would frustrate me. It would piss me off. So yeah. I actually don't think I will. All my teammates still play and they're always like, dude, you got to come and run with us. And I'm like, no way. So. It's interesting because that's kind of the direct opposite of how you treat yourself as a writer. Yeah, it's, which is that's like true. That's a very good point. Meeting yourself where you are and just being like, this is where I'm at. This is where we're going to go. <laughs> As a writer, I feel like I'm ascending with my athleticism. I'm declining quickly. Yeah. I mean, I do go to yoga at least twice a week. That's nice. my that's my new deal. I have to give myself some credit for hot yoga. Yeah. In terms of like basketball, I'm ways from that. When did you start doing yoga? <sighs> I did hot yoga in college. I had some friends who kind of bullied me into going with them. So I was like, sure, I'll go to hot yoga. And I hated it. <laughs> but I actually got back into it just maybe like three months ago. And now I'm obsessed. Like, I have my own mat. I'm like locked in. Oh, I actually just booked my mat. yoga before I came over here for this podcast. Nice. I was like, oh yeah. So every Sunday I'm like on the Core Power website looking at where I'm. <laughs> okay, so you're at Core Power. Yeah. Shout out Core Power. Like oh, yeah. gotta Shout plug them. Core of Power. Course, yeah. We're looking for sponsorship, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> Sorry. Gonna cut that curse. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I love Core Power, yes. Yeah, no, Core Power is my great. Gang. That's my game. Core gang. Power is great. Can you talk about like your young life at all? I had a really interesting upbringing. My parents split when I was like maybe two years old Mm -hmm. and they both moved about 30, 40 minute drive from one another. So I grew up split custody. So I would spend, you know, Mondays and Tuesdays at my mom's, Wednesdays and Thursdays at my dad's and alternate weekends. And it was this back and forth shuffle. And I was an only child with my parents. And then both my mom and dad would remarry and then they'd have stepkids and then on my dad's side, I have half brothers as well, mm-hmm. who are totally my brothers. I ended up getting this really unique dynamic, like family unit that I think most kids who say, oh, I come from a, a household of parents that are not together, you assume like there's a lot of drama and it's sort of like an inconvenient thing. And I feel like quite the opposite. I have such a unique and like crazy dynamic of amazing step parents, amazing parents, brothers, right. everything. And yeah, it's given me two completely different families. I'm the only one that, that connects them to each other. And yeah, I love it. I still am super close with all of them. And they're like my biggest cheerleaders in what I'm doing today. So yeah, I kind of grew up in that way. And like we've already talked about, sports was the thing that I hung my hat on at a young age. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I just followed through forever. So can you talk about like a time that you failed and you may have had a fear that there wouldn't be a way to come back from it, but then you did. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think for me, that was actually like most of my life is a lot of <laughs> failure, you know, to be honest. I had very lofty goals. So like yeah. when you do, when you reach for the stars, like you come up short. And <laughs> I think that's the actually the most encouraging thing you can have is to have aspirations for things you can't achieve because that I think that means you're aiming high enough Mm -hmm. like if you're getting yeses to everything you're doing then you need to aim higher you know Mm -hmm. but yeah it was a crazy situation but my older brother Taylor Hange who I you know loved to death and really was like a role model of mine when I was growing up he was really great athlete too I was going to school at Oaks Christian and Oaks Christian is a big private school out near where I live and they have like really great facilities and sports teams and 
I really wanted to go there to play with my older brother. And we were going to go to high school together because we'd never gone to school together at any age. So I applied and went through the whole process and didn't get in. I must have been 14, 15 years old, and Mm -hmm. I was wrecked. I was so distraught and disappointed and felt like just a, you know, I felt like a total loser for not being able to get into this high school because not only was it an amazing opportunity to further my education, they had an amazing team and I knew all the guys, but I I let down my older brother by not getting into school. And um, That can't be true. Well, what was crazy though is that the decision was made that I actually went to their rival high school, which is a public high school called Oak Park Mm -hmm. and it's much smaller and you know wasn't a private school so they didn't have the same budget for facilities and and all that and uh, what was amazing part of the story is we ended up turning that school into like a uh, statewide powerhouse and we went to like the state championships when I was there and we set all these records for wins and now Oak Park is the heartbeat of my life and I still go back and speak there every year and yeah they've like become a huge 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 Michael Jordan I, I apparently the redhead michael jordan of oak park <laughs> high school but man i'm like still close with the superintendent and the principal and the principal was at my book a launch event last week and like, oh, cool. yeah it's 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 deep who'd have thought it would happen on accident you know yeah. so that failure really did turn into that amazing opportunity it's pretty unnerving to think about how much pressure kids put on themselves I remember as a kid really feeling like if I don't do this thing, I won't have a future Mm. because that's how so many things were phrased. Yeah. And you don't see that shit continues. Time goes on and new opportunities present themselves. It's not this or nothing, you know? It's never that. I mean, I think it's, I mean, that's such a great point, important point to make is so many times the thing that we feel like we need or want doesn't happen but then a new door opens and that becomes the thing that launches the next portion of your career and i felt like i've been dealing with that my whole career especially as a writer this happened to me as as recently as a few weeks ago i was in some huge meeting and didn't really end up going the way i'd hoped but as i was walking out of that meeting i ran into someone who ended up getting me on this huge show and like boom another break happened and had i not shown up to that meeting and not seen that person none of that would have happened and then that led to the next thing and You just have to be like super persistent and always pushing on no matter what happens. Because, yeah, you best believe like something crazy will happen. So you can't really, you know, prepare for it. You just have to keep pushing on. And, yeah, it's something I talk about a lot. Yeah, no, a dear friend of mine recently said to me, he was like, patience and persistence. Just you have to have patience and persistence and shit will happen. Well, it's incredible how it works out when you do that. You tend to get lucky when you are that persistent. So yeah, I totally agree with that. And also staying open to all opportunities. Because like the other thing is, is like sometimes you want something and then when you actually get it, you're just like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Like, I feel like I always had a vision of my life and was someone who was always like, this is what my life is going to be. Mm. And then every time that I like hit that mark, I was like, oh, this shit does not rock. Like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. I'm experiencing extreme anxiety in this situation because now that I have this thing, I have to maintain it and all that jazz. And like, once you kind of let that go and you just kind of accept where you are, things start to come to you that you can't even imagine, you know, and the whole world just opens up in this really kind of incredible way. Yeah, for sure. It's scary. I think going back to the conversation we were just having about your engineering background and taking that leap is one of the most fearful things about being in like an artistic career or or coming out as an artist, as you said, is like, there really is no roadmap. Like you really are going with the wind. Whereas if you are in a more traditional route of career, it's like, okay, and six months from now, I need to get this promotion and I can move to this company or move to this place. But if you're in entertainment, you're basically in like a slow build until your big, huge break. And that could take months. It could take years. It could never happen. But that excitement and that thrill, you have to have a passion for that because it does take a lot out of you, you know? Yeah. And like, I think you have to be prepared to just make your own luck at times and yeah it's fascinating like it's i think it's a really it's as as scary as it is it's equally as rewarding knowing like 
yeah, you're risking it all. But like, how cool is that? Like you said, with buying your equipment, the minute you get any money, like, I love that. Like you're going to one day when you're huge and I'm on your show again and we're, (laughs) you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, whatever, you're going to miss those moments of your career. This is the best part. I literally, I wake (laughs) up every single day and I'm like, this is fucking awesome. Something that you said that I think about often and I struggle at times to maintain this but it's like the thrill of it all you know and the fact that like you have to see yourself as on this journey and you're like how am I gonna make it work like how Mm. am I gonna put all the pieces together and it's so fun and I always notice that when I'm having writer's block a rough day or something I take a second and I'm like, what's wrong? Why is this not working? And it's always because I'm not having fun. Mm. And so what I'll do is I'll start blasting music. I'll do whatever routines that I have to do to loosen myself up. I'll dance around the house. I'll (laughs) sing. Like I'll go, I literally, I go insane. And I just, I'm like, okay, and now I'm having fun. And now I can get back to writing and write funny material. But if you're not having fun, you're closed off and the creative juices aren't flowing Mm, for sure yeah i mean it's you have to be loose you have to find a way to open yourself up i mean but that's you know it's easier said than done i think totally because it is a job and you have to support yourself and you have to find ways to like be productive with that fun side but it's a challenge and anything that comes easy is not worth it. So yeah, like that challenge of it, I, I welcome happily. And, right. But you have to grow with your career and I've had to change and adapt in a lot of ways too. So yeah, I mean, it is so much easier said than done because a lot of the time I'm like, oh shit, I am not having fun right now. And so that's why I feel like it's always so important to find practices that work for you that like ground you and bring you back to that center of yourself where you're kind of able to loosen up. And whether that's even just literally to be grounded and centered and not have a million thoughts flying through your brain. Or if it's like to be like, I'm having fun and this is the best thing ever. Whatever it is, I always really think that people should find ways to kind of bring themselves into the state of mind that they need to be in in order to optimize whatever they're doing and their passion. Do you have any practices that you use? Yeah, for sure. Well, one of them has become my hot yoga. Shout out Core yeah. Power. Um, that really Core ground- Power is getting way too much free press. <laughs> <laughs> I need some freaking CPM. I don't even know what that shit means yet because I haven't done my research. <laughs> but yeah, that that's grounded me a lot. Like going, like I'll have days where I'll do three, four, or five interviews in one day, and that. I always make sure to hit yoga before that because it reminds me, hey, this is why you've worked so hard to get to this moment. Just enjoy it. Have fun with the interviews and make the most of it. So that's one practice. Another one is actually, this is so funny. Before I start every day, the first thing I do when I get to my office is I have a record player and I'm a huge Bon Iver fan. And I have that album for Emma forever ago Mm -hmm. in in, uh, uh, vinyl and I play it every day. A skinny girl on that one. That's skinny, skinny, skinny love. Skinny love. That song is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, I listen That's to like it That's like the day. only one I know. <laughs> the album, I was like in like serious rotation writing for Moonflower. So that album, it centers me once again in a way that like puts me in a place that reminds me why I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, so mm. that, and, and I like won't do anything else while I'm listening to it. Like I'll just sit there, drink coffee and think about my day. Yeah. And then I get right into it. But those are two practices that I'm like super into. Do you listen so. to music while you write? hundred percent. Only listen to music while I write. Oh, yeah. wow. I, yeah. d- I didn't expect that. Oh my God. Yeah. It's so, it's, it's odd. Like it actually is strange because when I was like in college, I was that person that couldn't study while listening to music mm-hmm. or, or do like work while listening to music. When I write emails or do anything like busy work related, I can't listen to music during that either. But when I write, I can't write without listening to music. And sometimes I'll even listen to the same song on repeat for hours, like two, three hours. That's like what they do to terrorists. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) no, it's true. It's torturous. It's like really odd. And but I think what happens, Erica, is like, I mean, I, I don't know this for certain, obviously, but I think 
the song just becomes background music to the point where even the lyrics I can't even hear. Right. And then it's just, yeah, flow. like a flow, right? Yeah. No, like I definitely, I love listening to music that like brings me into flow state, like very calming music. But yeah, I don't listen to music while I write. But I listen to music while I do everything else. So I'm kind of the so exact yeah. opposite. Well, I think I'm the outlier in that sense. Like that's how most people are. In no, I definitely know people who are like, especially screenwriters. They They'll were, be like, I to... want this yeah, vibe yeah, 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 during yeah. this scene. So I'm going to listen to this type yeah, of music, right. you know? I think the other thing too on that front that I think is kind of odd that I do that I would love to share with you. Please. <laughs> is I actually like demarcate songs to projects and will never listen to them again once that project has concluded or if i go into a new project that song won't overlap like huh once a song gets like this song's for moonflower okay i won't listen to it anywhere else unless i'm working on moonflower and then once the book's done that the song's done and it's kind of a great i mean <laughs> it's, it's canceled yeah it's a little bit neurotic but it is interesting. Like, like I'll give you an example. Like, I have a third project novel that I'm writing. And I wrote some of it in between editing stages of Darling. Mm -hmm. And I had a playlist for that third book. I love the playlist so much. And I swear I, like, think about it every day. Like, there's there's a ton of Chance the Rapper on it. Mm -hmm. And I, like, miss listening to Chance so much that I almost might just start writing it again just so I can listen to some of those songs again. <laughs> you know, it's, like, yeah. it's odd. That's really interesting. I mean, I just like picture you in a bar and like Chance the Rapper comes on. You're like, I can't be here right now. <laughs> Gotta get my journal out. <laughs> that's exactly probably what would happen. And that's probably exactly how I sound, actually. Yeah. I, do you ever write in bars? I have. Yeah. It is. My short story. Experience. My short story I wrote oh. a lot of in a bar. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I was at the Huntley in Santa Monica. What were you drinking? <sighs> probably. A nice dirty martini <laughs> no i think actually since i am like not much of a drinker i was just drinking like rose i was so slow burn yeah. mellow i can't really focus if it's anything stronger than just one yeah yeah no my favorite thing to do and again this is past life <laughs> okay because it's not feasible anymore <laughs> but going to a really fancy french restaurant and getting escargot and french onion soup and a nice cabernet yeah and just leaning into that yeah artistic, with a journal yeah. oh my god it's transcendent <laughs> hey well you're gonna have that back yeah you, would you live anywhere else other than the u.s oh a hundred percent yeah i think i feel right now though like i am wherever I can be to do the work that I want to do. What do you mean by that? Like being in entertainment and, yeah. and, and co comedy. And like I really... But that's becoming global. Yeah. Well, comedy is global. Yeah. Comedy is already global. Comedy, you can do anywhere. I started doing comedy in Hong Kong. The first time that that's I right. ever... I remember you telling me that. Yeah. yeah, yeah the yeah. first time that I ever did stand-up, I was in Hong Kong. Damn. And I took a stand-up class. And like there do was... Do you speak other languages? I speak Spanish. I speak it conversationally enough to navigate, but it's definitely not perfect or fluent. And it's definitely not good enough to do comedy in Spanish. Okay. But the thing that struck me while I was in Hong Kong was I saw a ton of American comedians. And I saw a bunch of Australian comedians. And also a ton of local comedians that were all hilarious. It was a very international scene and like everyone was just coming up and doing their thing. The other thing that is kind of a past life is that when I first graduated, I wanted to move to London. I didn't want to move here. I love London. Yeah. But then the pandemic hit, obviously. Mm. So I was like, that's not. Pretty really. artistic place, London. Yeah. Well, so the goal was that I was going to work in real estate development and then do comedy on the side and sprint between open mics, which for the job that I was looking at, wouldn't have been feasible sure so everything happens for a reason <laughs> well london might be in your future still you never know yeah i mean it could be i was just there maybe like six months ago it was incredible i went with like a couple of my former teammates from college and we had an amazing time i was in london ireland and portugal so tell me about lisbon yes lisbon is a place that's like super near and dear to my heart my cover designer, Nuno Moreira, who did Joining the Choir Invisible and the new cover for my new book, Darling, You're Not Alone, is from Lisbon and lives there. 
and I'd never actually been to Portugal before. So I was in Ireland on like a pretty standard vacation type thing and hanging out, going to pubs and, you know, sitting in the rain and, and feeling like James Joyce. My buddy who I was there with had to fly home which wasn't like a surprise. It just was like I had an extra three days on my, the back end of my trip. Nice. And I was sitting there thinking, dang, Portugal isn't that far from where I currently am. Mm-hmm. And so I should make that mission possible. So I booked a flight to Lisbon and was only there for one night. And it's about a three-hour flight from Dublin to Lisbon, mm-hmm. but flew down there, got into Portugal, and it was about 40 degrees warmer than it was in Dublin. Dublin was like in the low 40s and Lisbon was in the 80s. And I just had a backpack and I was just bouncing around the town until I was having dinner with the artist who does the covers of my books. And yeah, like just to meet the guy who was putting his heart and soul into the craft of designing the cover of your book, you know, because like, it's so crazy, Erica, when you think about how you could, I mean, I spent three years writing Darling, You're Not Alone. Mm -hmm. And no matter how much time I put into that book, the first thing that anyone sees is that cover. And to trust someone with that work, knowing they're on the other side of the world is like, I don't know, it's a fascinating bond you have with this person. And so I got to meet Nuno that night and we had, you know, an 18 course meal with that accompanied wine and cheese and pasta and oh, lamb and living. yeah it was just like one of the we coolest swap lives. yeah it was, it was it was so beautiful Kidding. and then you're sitting out on the rustic countertops of the street that you can walk anywhere to and the people are bustling and it's yeah it was amazing and also i knew i was there for 24 hours so that in and of itself was like a crazy experience and we were drinking this super interesting aperitif that's called Jinha. That's like a cherry liqueur. That's like an after-dinner drink. And I loved it so much that I bought four bottles of it. And I tried to get back through customs the next oh, no. day. They seized all of it, yeah. which sucked. But what was funny was I couldn't ship it back to the U.S. from the airport, but I could ship it to someone in the country. So I sent it all to my cover designer and was oh, like, hey, man, sweet. like, Merry Christmas. You know, here's four bottles of this alcohol. So every time we talk, he's always like, hey, man, I've still, I, I put it's it all aside. It. So make sure you come back, you know? So I don't know. It was one of the cooler things I've ever gotten to do in my career was meet Nuno and share a second with him because he worked so hard. And I'm very grateful to have someone as talented as him do the covers of my book. So that's a really cool story. How did you find him? Just online. I put up like an advertisement for my short story joining the choir invisible and he applied to do the art for it. And Chris and I were your manager, Chris, my manager. Yeah. We went and took a look at like his website and he'd done all kinds of street art. And he was also a guest lecturer at a, at a school there. And he's super multifaceted and graphic design is just one of the many hats he wears. And it was a no brainer to work with him. And he did a terrific job on that. So he also did one of my good friends, Ben Manhan and Spencer Daniels, the other authors at Summer House. He did their covers too. So yeah, now we've got this partnership with him. That's pretty extraordinary. So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get the whole working with someone across the world thing. I've been working with this girl in Hong Kong. Yeah, well, I was going to say the Hong Kong connection. That's pretty far. Yeah, it's really far. But it's interesting because it's like a 15 hour time difference from LA. Yeah, I think Lisbon's eight or nine, but yeah. And the 15 hours actually works out kind of (laughs) because it'll be 6 p.m. here and like it'll be like whatever, 9 p.m. there. Uh Is that math right? I think so. Yeah, well, ours, 9 a.m. (laughs) Yeah, our time difference was tricky when we were coming down to the finish line for the book. I'd be like, hey, man, you know, because he not only did Nuno do the cover. That's a good like warning for me. (laughs) he He designed the interior. So he did all the typesetting and the formatting and oh, wow. yeah, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. So like, it's not always the same person, yeah. but sometimes you'll, if you're working with a designer for a book, they'll do the cover and all the interior design and he right. does that too. So he's the last person who you, you work with before the book's published. So yeah, we were coming down to the wire on Darling, but we got it done. Clearly. That's really amazing. And how's it been since the release? How are you feeling? I mean, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't overwhelming, Erica. It's a pretty extraordinary thing. It's a super intense story and one that I spent years writing. And Mm -hmm. I did sort of feel like I was anticipating a pretty massive amount of response from the world once the book was out. But I think I wasn't even 
prepared for this, you know, what, what has happened from the mm-hmm. amount of TV shows I've done to the magazines and the podcasts. And it's, it's a pretty crazy experience to like live through and go through. I've, I've probably been hour by hour for the last month, wow. just in terms of the rollout of each thing I'm doing. And it's, and it's just getting bigger by the, by the hour. But what's been fascinating is, you know, seeing how many people are taking something from this story and feeling like Mm -hmm. you know it meant a lot to them or it hit them in a certain way and it's a beautiful thing i you know it's it's no secret that the book involves a school shooting and that's something i talk about a lot because i think it's a really important topic to discuss but Mm -hmm. one of the things that i took very seriously was ensuring that to anybody who asked me about or i spoke about this topic with i knew a lot about current laws and current events and and that sort of thing because part of the book is loosely inspired by the events that took place in Columbine High School in 1999. I spoke with on the phone an individual that worked for CBS News who covered the actual shooting in 1999. And I got to speak with him about all of the events that transpired and what he remembered from that. As sort of heavy and intense as that is, I think it's so important as a world, as a society, as a writer to write about things that need to be discussed and we cannot just turn our head away from this seemingly just u.s problem that is school shootings and gun violence in communities like elementary schools middle schools high schools and obviously out beyond that but i specifically spoke about just that part of our world and it's been a really rewarding sort of thing to hear from people that are touched by the book in that way and that's why i wrote it so what was your original impetus to write it? I was so gripped by the concept that a kid could go to school one day and not come home later that same day. And that we as a society don't do enough to stop that from ever happening again. Mm -hmm. And Columbine for me was really the kind of match that struck the entire fire of school shootings in the United States. And so I wanted to write a story that my book likewise takes place in the year 1999 and advances from that event. But I also wanted to write a story that could take what I felt like was the worst thing that I think happens in humanity, which is school shootings, and couple it with this really extraordinary, incredible, positive other side of that, which is this hopeful sort of ethereal heaven concept, if you will. And I won't talk too much about it because I don't want to give away kind of how the second half of the book is. But it's something that I felt like, you know, kind of my calling card for the book is is extraordinary darkness can exist and so too much extraordinary light. And yeah, I wanted to take these two very contrasting things and write a book about each one of them. And that's what Darling, You're Not Alone is about. The unity of opposites. Yeah, that's, it's a very heavy topic. It's hard to digest and think about. But Do you feel hopeful for our country moving forward? I'm so hopeful in people. I really do believe in people in a way that like, that's also a big part of the book is the power and the strength in the people that are most often not appreciated. The clerk at the gas station, the trash man who picks up your trash every day, those are the heroes of Darling You're Not Alone. Yeah. And I believe wholly with every fiber of who I am that those small interactions give me hope in the heroes of tomorrow. If someone as terrible can take a gun and walk into a school and, and you know forever change the lives of every kid and every family that's impacted, so too can that one person that gets up every day and goes to work and smiles at every person and says, hey, I hope you have an amazing day and gives them that cup of coffee and does that little thing to just make the world a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I believe in that. And no matter what happens and no matter who gets elected or what law passes, I still believe in people in that way. And you know what? If that makes me stupid, then maybe I am stupid because I, I, I think most people are really good. I believe in that. Yeah. No, it's important to maintain the faith in humanity. I had a very powerful conversation with a friend last night about anti-Semitism and racism in Mm. this country as well. We live in such a complicated place. And at the same time, if you sit down and talk with people and just listen to what they have to say, I guarantee you, you might not agree with everything, but you will find 
foundational common ground. People just want to know that they are safe and they can live their lives safely and maintain a high quality of life. And I mean, if people are scared to send their children to school, that's endangering that. Mm. It's such a tragic issue, but you are a saint for writing about it and bringing it back to the surface because it's also so tragic that it's only an issue that's discussed when it's in the news cycle. Fabulous point. I talk about that a lot. And and that's a big part of Darling. In the novel, I, I actually focus on that theme in the beginning. I think it's chapter 11, I want to say, because this terrible instance takes place in 1999 and then the book jumps forward a year. And I immediately... I think it's one of the opening paragraphs of of the year 2000 where I say like the camera stopped showing up, the news reporters went home, the next tragedy took place and these kids are left going to the same high school, right? And and look, you can't blame the media because there is another event that's happening and it's their jobs to go and cover that next thing and you have to sort of move on. The victims are forced to move on without the help that they really do need. And one of the things I am very transparent about is look like I didn't personally go through a school shooting. I don't have experience with this particular topic, but what I do try to write about is I think in the media, so much is often discussed about, all right, you know, 14 people were killed, you know, and 13 were wounded. And that's the number that we get a comp to accompany, you know, Uvalde or mm-hmm. Sandy Hook or name the school shooting. I think about the reason I wrote Darling, You're Not Alone is to not take away from that number, which is obviously a catastrophe. But there's also the countless other amounts of kids and families that weren't directly impacted, but were at school that day or have a brother that goes to that school or a parent that had to think about their kid and wondering if they were alive or not and not knowing. And that number is the ripple effect. There's so many people that are, as a side effect of these events, affected. And, yeah. you know, my book, Darling, You're Not Alone, focuses on those people, too, is like the community itself. And I think that is something that needs to be discussed further, too. So, Right. What do you think people can do to help our country evolve to a better place? This is something I'm pretty passionate about too. You're an example of this as well in this way as a good thing is I do think that social media and voicing your opinion and having an opinion is important and voting and doing all that is great. And it's obviously that that's how real change happens. But I do think if you really are struck by a certain event, And, you know, for me, I lost a friend to sickle cell disease and sickle cell disease has become a part of my life that I'm really passionate about working towards a cure, raising money for that thing. And so I work for a nonprofit that supports children that are diagnosed Mm -hmm. with sickle cell disease. Gun violence is another thing that I was very passionate about and, you know, school shootings. So I wanted to write a book about that to give me the chance to come on shows like this and talk about it. Mm -hmm. I think if there is something that keeps you up at night and you're focused on, try and find a way to maybe not get in an argument at the Thanksgiving dinner table about it and maybe just find an actionable item that can make a small change in the right direction. Like I said, I've been writing Darling, You're Not Alone for three years and I felt like I've sort of kept my mouth shut on purpose about uh, gun violence because I wanted to write this book to then give me the opportunity to have something to stand on for this topic. I think people are busy and so it's not a result that they don't care. It's just that we kind of jump to answers in terms of how we feel about certain topics before we know enough about it. To answer your question, what can people do is almost like put a bookmark in anything that really makes you really upset with the world and then try and get a portion of your life for years to that thing. And you'd be shocked at like the amount of progress you can make if you do that. I just got sort of sick of, of not feeling like I was in the game, if you will, of trying to make a difference. And yeah. that's why I wrote this book. But, you know, like like I'm trying to make clear, that didn't happen overnight. Like mm-hmm. this was something that the fire burned in me so deeply that I spent years of my life trying to write this story. And it's only now I get the opportunity to talk about it. So I think I think my advice would be for people to find something that they think is really worth the energy and focus it it takes to make a real change and then work towards it and make it a long-term thing. Right. Yeah. No, I love that. Before we break, I'd like to ask two things that you're grateful for. It's a great question. Well, and 
if I haven't made it clear enough, Erica, this was so fun. I'm so happy yeah, I got to blast. yeah come on your show. I think you're incredible. I'd do anything for you. So this is this was a <laughs> real a real that. treat. You know, yeah. like I've been on a crazy, just like hectic tour, if you will. Um, journey. But I haven't sat across many people I've known as well as you. And this has been something I've been looking forward to for a while for that yeah. reason. You know, it's like being with an old friend. So it's been really fun. And I'd say that's one of the most, one of the things I'm grateful for is you. I think, oh, thank uh, you. I think you're putting together a great show, a great <laughs> opportunity. And it's cool to see like a friendly face and have these conversations yeah. with. And then you said two things I'm grateful for, yeah. right? I'd say the other thing I'm grateful for is my family. As this hectic time of my career goes on. I beat your family. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) I really appreciate them, you know, for supporting me and giving me the opportunity to stand strong through these tough conversations. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I rely on them a lot. So shout out all my brothers, my parents, my step parents. I love you guys a ton. So that's beautiful. And then one big F you. So that would mean like like something that didn't go correct or it can be literally anything. It can be expired ketchup that makes your tongue tingle oh, oh, weirdly. Yeah, something that really just irks you. Yeah, okay. something that just irks you. Or it can be a person. Like yeah, yeah, it yeah. can be whatever you want. One big F you. Oh. The guy who stole your parking spot right, right. in Whole Foods. <laughs> one big F you. I love that. It's funny. I would say my one big f you is to this la weather right now like i'm so what yeah yeah now hear me out hear me out i'm so confused about how to dress right now in what month is it november yeah sometimes i'm freezing cold Mm -hmm. and for me freezing cold is like anything below 60 and then sometimes i'm very very hot and it depends on like what part of the valley i'm in or where i'm at so yeah i'm really not I'm you pleased with that right now, which I'll I know, yeah, which I know is like, I'll a very... give you some priceless advice. <laughs> Layers, always bring a sweater and a jacket. Layers, yeah. <laughs> but I'll accept it. I'll accept that yeah. as a big F you, yeah, yeah. big F you to the weather in LA in November, which is the most LA thing to say. Yeah. But... <laughs> um, is there anything else that you want to leave us off with? Absolutely. This is my favorite part of any of any podcast I've ever done. Yeah. Is the la- is the any do you want to say anything else? My speak now or forever hold yeah, your peace. My forever closing statement is on a little bit more of a serious note. If anybody out there is going through a tough time, having a tough day or a tough year or a tough life, remember you're not alone. There's someone else out there going through a similar situation and maybe they just haven't come into your life yet. I think the serendipity of how you and I met, I think is a really important thing to share with people is like, look how chance this encounter has been and and look Mm -hmm. at what it's, you know, blossomed into. So my advice would just be to anyone listening or watching, keep fighting, keep battling through whatever it is you're going through and make sure you check out any of my books on Amazon or my website and get a copy. And if they can hopefully help bring you some light, that would mean a lot to me. And that's why I wrote them. So Go ahead and find Darling, You're Not Alone, Moonflower, and joining the Choir Invisible on Amazon. And I'm J.D. Slackard, and Erica Cantor is my dog forever, so I appreciate (laughs) you having me on. So, Well, you're so welcome, dog. Thank you for coming. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Big F You. That was J.D. Slackard. You can find him on his website, jdwritesbooks.com or on Instagram at jd underscore slackert, S-L-A-J-C-H-E-R-T. And his two books, Darling You're Not Alone and Moonflower are both available for purchase on Amazon. Thanks again for listening. See you next week. (laughs) 